Um, wonderful to be here. I'm always excited when I hear or even get to meet like today of a woman scribe, <laughs> a soferet in Hebrew, um, because this is something special. This is um, writing Torah scrolls is a wonderful holy task. Um, and it has been traditionally done by men only. And um, gradually in the, maybe, maybe um, so Ferret, Julie, you, you'll correct me on that, on the history, but um, it, I'm always um, amazed and I'm, I'm humbled when somebody takes on a holy task like that. Uh, and, and also women and, um, getting to know, there are still few, I believe, but getting to know more and more women who engage in that holy task and trade is wonderful. And Julie Seltzer is a Torah scribe and educator living in the Hudson Valley in New York. Um, she, she was trained by Jen Taylor Friedman and learned with several scribes in Jerusalem. And currently, Julie recently completed her fourth Torah scroll for congregation Kol Ami in White Plains and is writing a memoir about her spiritual journey. And she's excited to be part of a growing network of women scribes. And I welcome you here in Arizona and um, uh, virtually. And we would love to hear more what brought you to be a scribe, to learn what you have to teach us about what goes into the making of a Torah scroll. Take us on your journey with us. Oh, with yeah, <laughs> please. Thank you. Thank you so much for that introduction, Rabbi Steinkoken, and thank you, Rabbi Shmuley, for the invitation. Um, first of all, I will say that my great aunt lives in Arizona. Um, so I have been mostly to Tucson, um, and it's good to be back. I can practically feel the hot desert sun um, from my New York, uh, New York office here. Um, so I, it's interesting, you know, you, in the introduction, you spoke about being, me being a woman and how it is unusual, and it is um, it is unusual. So Jen Taylor Friedman, who taught me, um, at least was one of my teachers, my first teacher and primary teacher, um, she was, as far as we know, the first woman in all of history to write a Torah scroll. Um, now, women have previously written um, the Torah text, but not used as a, as a scroll. Um, chanted from. So that was in 2007. So that that's pretty recent. When I when I teach for second graders, um, it doesn't seem as recent to them. <laughs> They're like, it's so that was so long ago. Um, but of course, it's very recent in Jewish history. Um, and so when she trained me, um, I was then subsequently invited to write a Torah scroll at a museum in San Francisco, the Contemporary Jewish Museum. It was part of an exhibit about how Torahs are made. And after the completion of that scroll, that was, as far as we know, the second scroll, um, or I guess the, I guess I was this, maybe the second woman to write a, a Torah scroll. I can't remember if Jen had completed her second or not at that point. Um, but I will also say along these same lines that when it first occurred to me to learn this art 
and this craft, I didn't know that women didn't do it. I mean, I, maybe I knew on some level, but it didn't, it didn't occur to me because I grew up thanks to the, um, the women and the men and the people of the generation before me who did a lot of work um, and paved the way for me to have opportunities or to think that I might have opportunities um, that were not available um, to people and women in particular of previous generations. So it didn't really occur to me that um, I wouldn't be able to pursue this craft. And so I started learning and, and in fact, um, have received a lot of um, a lot of positive feedback, and I think in in many communities there's a thirst for um, for more women writing sacred uh, sacred texts. So here's how um, I thought we would do this session today. I have a bunch of slides and a presentation. However, I also love getting questions and um, having Q and A both during and after. So um, I will start the presentation, maybe get through some, and I'll come back and, and check in with you all and see if there are any questions um, as we go. So people often ask how I came to be interested in this. How did I become a scribe? Um, and the truth is, is that it really was like a light bulb went off one day. Um, it felt a little bit random, a little bit um, divine, even though I don't, um, that's not quite my theology. I don't um, necessarily, you know, believe that we all have a, a single like faded path or anything like that. Um, but it did have that kind of feeling around it. I was walking down the streets of Jerusalem on a visit. I had lived in Israel in the past and I would subsequently live in Israel for a, a number of years. Um, but this time I was just on a visit and I was walking down the street in a neighborhood I used to live in and all of a sudden a thought popped, popped into my head that said, I want to learn how to write the letters like they're written in the Torah. And previously I had taught at a Jewish day school. So I was definitely, I mean, I, Judaism was a strong part of my life. I loved laning or chanting Torah. Um, but I had never thought about who wrote a Torah, really. I guess I sort of knew it was handwritten. I mean, I guess I knew, but I didn't give much thought to it. Um, and just all of a sudden I had this thought and it was very clear. And I came back home from the trip and I started um, learning on my own. I found some information online. I went to an art store and bought a calligraphy pen and uh, some ink. Is anyone here a calligrapher, by the way? No one? Okay, I was not either at the time. Um, and I don't know, you may know this, but in, in a calligraphy pen, which is not the typical instrument for writing Torah, but I started this way, um, there's a nib and the nibs, um, go, it fits into the pen. There's a slit inside the pen and the nib goes in and then you dip it in the ink. I didn't realize there was a slit. So I was sort of trying to hold the nib on the pen and everything was falling apart. And it, it took me hours. I mean, I really do, did not have any natural talent at this at all. I just had, um, I just had the desire to learn and uh, a lot of perseverance. So, um, so with, for the first couple months, I learned on my own from what I could find on the internet, which at that time was, you know, it existed, but it didn't exist quite in the way that it exists today. But I did, I did find some information um, and started practicing. 
And then eventually after a few months, I found, um, Jen, I connected with Jen Taylor Friedman, um, who I met with once a week and she trained me and she taught me what she knew. Um, so that's how I got into it. I, I'm also leaving out, uh, I, I left out a major piece of this, which is a more personal piece. Um, you know, of course, I always have loved Hebrew and the Torah and the language and the letters really drew me in. But also at that time in my life, my mother was sick um, and she was dying of cancer. And I think I wanted to go to a place that was um, focused and a little more internal and maybe even shut out a bit of the chaotic world that was my world at the time. Um, that was one piece and also the desire to connect to something that was more lasting um, than our short lives. Um, the Torah is, you know, is seen as eternal and it is certainly quite old and it will hopefully go far, uh, exist far into the future. So I wanted to connect myself to, um, to this, somehow to this chain of existence and to this, uh, this longer lasting um, spiritual and, uh, and sacred object. And so um, that is a bit about how I got started. Um, any questions so far about that? And then I'm gonna get into more of the nitty gritty of how Torah scrolls are made. And I don't know if you all have the ability to unmute yourselves or uh, Rabbi. Yeah. Um, what what was the reaction like of maybe your friends, but also of people you sought out to learn from them? Yeah, um, a lot of there was a lot of interest. Um, I find across the board there's a lot of interest um, in every Jew in every denomination of Judaism and sort of from every angle. So my more secular friends thought it was very cool because I'm a woman doing something that uh, women hadn't traditionally done. And my more um, observant or religious friends thought it was very cool because I was going to be writing the most sacred texts in Judaism. Um, so people were very, very supportive and everyone I, I sought to learn with was also quite supportive mm -hmm. and open with their teaching. Uh, Eileen. How many um, people are currently writing Torah in the world? Do you know? How many people in general? I'm not sure. I can't imagine it's a huge number. Um, but there are definitely new Torahs that come out into the world every year. Um, I just, yeah, I'm not aware of, I, I don't know an exact figure. Okay, so I am going to start this presentation. Um, we talked about how I became a scribe. I kind of liked the idea of that, you know, maybe I knew since I was a child and ever since my bat mitzvah, when I read Torah, this is me chanting from the Torah at my bat mitzvah, um, but it's not the case. <laughs> Still, I kind of like to, to look at this as a sort of a, a through line um, of how I got into it. Um, this is me working on repairing a Torah. Um, you might recognize the words here, tzedek, tzedek, tirdof, justice, justice you will pursue. 
as you can see with the letters, um, they have started to fade or like chip away the, the, that white space. And so they needed to be fixed. And, and here um, is a picture of, uh, I'm writing with a feather um, and I'm, I'm re-inking some of these letters. And I, I chose this picture in part to because of the famous line, Tzedek, Tzedek, Tirdof, in part because I'm wearing sparkly purple nail polish, which I just thought was kind of a funny image or maybe an image we don't necessarily expect to see with a so Ferret Stam, a scribe. Now, every single thing that a scribe is trained to write, um, which include a Torah, Tefillin, Mezuzah, and Megillah, which are actually represented in the acronym that I just said. So a, uh, a Sofer or a Soferet, that's kind of the short version, but that just means writer. So if you wanted to refer to a novelist, you would say Sofer. Um, a scribe technically is a sofer, soferet stam. Um, stam, if you know modern Hebrew, not stam as in uh, doesn't matter, nothing. Um, stam as in an acronym. It stands for Sefer Torah, Tfilin, and the mem stands for both mezuzah and megillah. And these are the objects that we're trained to write. And these are also the objects that have to be written in a certain way. And each of them require Kavana. They require intention, what's called l'shem, for the sake of the thing. So before I start a project, I say out loud, Hareini ani kotevet l'shem kedushat sefer Torah. I am writing this for the sake of the sanctity of the Torah, or whatever it is I'm writing, for the sake of the mezuzah, for the sake of the megillah. And I just have to say it one time and it will cover the entire project. So of course, for a Torah, that's much longer. Um, but it's good to repeat this, um, this intention as a reminder to myself and to the world and saying it out loud is part of that significance. Every aspect of this craft has kavana, has intention. And things are made and done for the purpose of sacred objects. So even the parchment before at the very first stage of its preparation, before it's soaked in lime to clean, someone has to say out loud, I'm preparing this parchment for use in sacred writings. And the same with, I'm sewing this Torah. I'm repairing this Torah. I'm preparing this parchment I, I mentioned already. So kavana is a big part of it. And I also thought you would find this interesting. Every single time a scribe writes a name of God, they have to set a special intention before writing a name of God. So um, what you say is, much like the previous um, statements, I am writing this, this name for the sake of God's name. Now it gets a little bit complicated sometimes because sometimes the very same word is a name of God and sometimes it's not a name of God. So take the word Elohim. Elohim could mean God, like Bereshit bara Elohim et It's in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Or it could be Elohim as in God's, lowercase g, right? Um, do not bow down to Elohim acherim, to other gods. And it's the very same Hebrew word. So it's important that the scribe know and make the distinction 
because you have to uh, say a statement of intention before writing God's name, but you cannot make a statement uh, a statement of intention before writing a name that's not a name of God. Now, where it gets complicated is that sometimes the rabbis weren't sure, and these are called cases of suffake. So if you can see my cursor, this word, lelohim, um, uh, as a god, it's translated here, it has this small word suffake, in doubt, which means we're not sure if this is a name of God or if it's not a name of God. And the context is that God tells Moses when he's saying to, um, when God, when Moses says, I can't, I can't really speak. I have a speech impediment. I can't go to Pharaoh. God says to Moses that Moses will be like God or like a God for Aaron who will speak his words to Pharaoh, right? So Moses is like a God or like the God, and we're not sure which is in, intended here. So in this case, you make, the scribe makes kind of a provisional statement of intention. If it's a name of God, I'm sanctifying it. If it's not a name of God, I am not sanctifying it. Now, um, this, I just thought it would be fun to see what the Sefer Torah likes looks like before it's sewn all together. These are uh, piles of Torah sheets. They're called Yuriot. Um, each of these has four columns of text per sheet. That's not always true for all Torah. So this is true for the version that I was writing here. Um, and as you can see, it's a lot of sheets. This Torah has 62 sheets that all get sewn together. Um, now I'm going to ask Pam to, to run a poll. Um, I, I thought I would ask you all kind of like guessing the number of jelly beans in the jar. How many letters do you think are in the Torah? Is it 100,000? Approximately 100,000, 300,000, 600,000, or 1 million? All right, we have another 20 seconds or so. If you're still thinking, you might want to consider which of these it is. I let, so far, I don't think you can see the results, but so far it's pretty split. All right, there's three more of you that can still answer. I might be one of those people. <laughs> <laughs> but I know the answer, so that would be cheating. Okay, Pam, if we could share the results. 20% of you to uh, guessed 100,000, 30% of you guessed 300,000, 40% of you guessed 600,000, and 10% guessed 1 million. Now, um, this is very interesting because uh, the correct answer is 300,000. It's actually 300 and I think 5,805. Shmuley, you got it? Yes. <laughs> so, um, but I have a feeling I know um, why, mo why more of you guessed 600,000. And that is because in the Talmud, I mean, drastically, there's this idea, the rabbis actually say there are 600,000 letters in the Torah. But if you count them, 
it's not 600,000. It's much closer to 300,000. But why 600,000? Because 600,000 is this number, which is like, which is used as a very large number, right? In our tradition, 600,000 means like, it's like, it's like saying a million or, you know, whatever we would say today, a million people were there when we don't really mean a million people were there. We mean a lot of people were there. Um, so yes, there are 300,000 uh, approximately letters in the Torah. And it takes a between a year and a year and a half to write a Torah. That's if you're working on it full time, um, pretty much. So um, it's a very long, uh, extensive um, project to take on. And, uh, and therefore, that's why Torahs are expensive, especially, especially new Torahs. Um, though previously owned, they're kind of like cars, I guess. <laughs> you, get a, you get a previously owned one for, um, for, for less money if, you know, if your community was looking for a, a safer Torah. Um, so let me get into some of them. Let's let, let me see if there are any questions at this point. Wendy. Are there different styles in uh, writing a Torah and is that permissible? Yes, um, there are many, many different styles of writing. However, they're all one, they're all considered this a certain alphabet. Um, and I'm, I, this is actually my, my final slide, but, um, but I'll talk a little bit about it now. Um, the alphabet is called Ashurit, and it's the block Hebrew that we're um, familiar with, that, tor that Torahs and other sacred writings are written in. But there are many different styles of Ashuri. I mean, broadly speaking, there's Ashkenazi and Sparti writing. Um, and those differences, there's, there's one uh, common way, say, for example, to identify whether a, a scroll is Sparti writing or Ashkenazi writing, that you could look at a scroll and you could know, you could know yourself, even if you didn't know too much about it. If you look at the shin, a Ashkenaz, an Ashkenazi style shin has a pointed bottom and a Sephardi style shin has a flat bottom. So that is one um, major difference. And, and in general, Sephardi is a little bit curvier, the style of writing. But of course, within those two very broad uh, distinctions, there are many, many, or have been many, many different localized styles um, and styles that are taught from uh, traditionally from a Sofer to his son. Um, now, now that now with globalization, um, quite honestly, I mean, it, it has, you know, pros and cons. So one of the cons is that we're losing some of these more local and, and specific styles of writing um, in favor of, um, you know, everyone kind of following the same style, right? I have um, what's, what's called a Sofer's Tikkun. So I have to follow from an existing Torah when I'm writing. I don't write from memory. I don't write from a printed Torah. I'm actually writing from another Torah. It's a scanned copy, but it's a handwritten Torah. So a lot of people buy that same scanned copy of a Torah. So they're so um, our eyes and uh, we're 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 kind of merging. Our our scripts are becoming more and more similar. That being said, no two people can ever have the same handwriting. So necessarily, every scroll will look different. Um, other questions at this point. Before I get into the materials, I'm going to get into the parchment, the the ink, um, the feather, and the reed. Anything? Okay. So let's go back to our slides here. Um, so parchment is called in Hebrew klaf, 
It is made from a kosher animal. Interestingly, the animal, while the species has to be kosher, the, um, it does not have to be slaughtered in a kosher manner um, that would make it kosher for eating. It can die of any reason. So in fact, um, dying of natural cause would be the most ideal um, to make parchment out of, out of the skin. I mean, it's certainly ethically, not necessarily for the, you know, how the ease of writing or the smoothness of the skin because an animal that died naturally might be an, an older animal. Um, but for example, um, I always, well, first let's talk about the animals that are kosher that most of the writing is done on. These days, cow is the most common simply because there are many, many cows um, out there in the world because of the meat industry. And, this, and then there are three other animals, three other species that are often, um, or that have been used and still are sometimes. And those are, do, do folks want to put that in the chat? Can we, can we guess? what they are. Is there a chat box? Yeah. Or if someone wants to say. Yes. Um, so we have two there. We have um, the lamb or uh, adult would be the sheep. That's exactly right. And we also have goat. Um, a goat Torah. Uh, do you know how, do you know how you could tell a goat Torah from other Torahs? Um, you might not know. Have you spent time near goats? Anyone? So they have a particular smell. Um, they smell very goaty. And in fact, if you if you get close to a Torah and you smell it, um, you will know that it was written on goat because <laughs> um, it will still smell like a goat. Um, and yes, uh, whoever wrote in, um, Wendy, thank you. Yes, deer is the fourth. Um, sometimes we don't even think of deer as a kosher animal because it's often hunted, which is, would not be kosher for eating. Um, however, it is kosher for, for writing. And many North African uh, scrolls are written on, on deer skin. It's actually called something else. There's, a, there's two ways to process skin. Um, one, one, you get clef, parchment, and it's thinner. And one, you get what's called gvil and it's the full skin um, and it's, it's thicker. And that is often uh, on, on deer, deer skin. Um, nobody, uh, let's see, nobody mentioned the giraffe. Giraffes are kosher. Um, and my, my teacher, Jen Taylor Friedman, would always joke about wanting to uh, get access to giraffe skin and write a Megillah on its neck because you could have a whole Megillah in one piece. Um, but giraffes are not very common um, and can't really, can't really, I spoke with a zookeeper. It does not seem promising. Um, this is, I was mentioning the other kind of, um, you know, the other kind of parchment that's called gvil. This, you can, you can see that the color is very different. This is deer skin. It's a, it's a Torah probably from, from North Africa. Um, and you can see that the coloring of the parchment is different. Um, the, I think because it, it oxidizes in a certain way, it turns like an orangish color. I buy my supplies at a scribal supply store in Jerusalem. Um, this is Meir. And um, they, they, there are a number of different shops. Not all of the shops will sell to women. Um, I had a number of 
negative experiences trying to buy supplies in certain places and they wouldn't sell to me. Um, now, this, uh, this store has been always very gracious to all of the women that go in to write. And it's been an interesting cultural exchange because um, once I actually was, I was part of uh, two projects in which five women, about five women together wrote a Torah scroll. So each of us approximately wrote one of the five books of the Torah. And three of us were living in Jerusalem at the time and we all went to the store together to pick out the parchment for the entire scroll. And we had all been there to buy supplies before and nobody really asked or said anything. We thought maybe they assumed that we were buying the parchment for our husbands or our fathers or etc. Um, but on this day, they asked directly, so who's writing this scroll? And we kind of looked at each other, uh-oh, do we, do we say? So we said, we are. And without really a moment's hesitation, Meir said, oh, for a reform congregation? So, um, so we said, actually, yeah, it's reconstructionist, but yeah, yeah, basically. Um, so he, you know, it was kind of interesting. He, he knew about, he knew about that world and he didn't, what I, what's great about um, them, and this is a family run business, they, while they would not accept a Torah that I wrote as kosher, they wouldn't read from it, they wouldn't chant from it in synagogue, and I can get into why, um, sort of halakhically, according to Jewish law, why that would be problematic if you're interested, but, but they also don't feel the need to stop us from doing it, um, whereas some of them did. Um, this is uh, pictures of a quill. Now, the reed, you know, the, which grows on the banks of, uh, of rivers, that was, a, that was really the first instrument. Um, but you can see they're, they're very similar to feathers in that they're hollow in the inside and can be carved. And that's the thing about, that's what I have to do with the feather. I have to carve it. The feather does not come as a pen, um, but it is a very good pen. Um, I work with, I'll show you, I, um, I work with a turkey quill um, and I cut the end off, I shave the sides and I cut a slit down the center so that it can hold um, the ink and in the channel. Any questions about the parchment or the feather? Does the feather have to come from a kosher animal also? So technically, technically no, but Ostensibly, yes. It's kind of like, according to the letter of the law, you can use anything, even a non-kosher uh, bird species for a pen, but nobody would do it. That's sort of the where, what it comes down to. Yeah. I think it would be very cool to be able to write with an ostrich feather or a peacock feather or something. Right? Those peacock feathers are beautiful, but I, I have to say on a practical level, speaking from experience, what happens with those big, beautiful feathers Keep, they keep bonking you in the head as you write. <laughs> so, so usually I actually just cut off this part, um, even though it's not as beautiful, but it's a little more practical. Any other questions before we move on to the ink and the anything else? Yeah, have I? Yeah, well, I just thought when you go to the store to choose, you have, you just, do they have like single, uh, what do you call them? Um, the sheets and you just have to really choose every single one of them? Yeah, so the sheets are called Yeriot. Yeriot, yes. Um, and yeah, so we take a look and see, are they um, 
you know, do we think they'll hold the ink well? Some parchment is made better than others and, and they're all different, right? Because they're all coming from different animals, different processing, it's all made, it's made by hand. So, um, so yeah, we choose, we choose every, every sheet. I don't totally choose now because I'll call in and uh, they send it to me. So they send me, they send me good stuff though. The pen can't be metal. Um, it actually can be. So that's the same as, it's the same as, you know, like a technically with a, with a, you know, an ostrich feather. So there had been um, a tradition that no metal was used at all, period, on Torah scrolls, even like um, for making, for fixing mistakes. Um, but now, but, and, and the reason for that was because um, it was noted that metal is used in war. But now metal is used, especially like small blades are, is used in surgery for healing. So metal is permitted and many people, I, I use metal, I use uh, surgical blades to, to fix mistakes. Um, probably not many people use um, metal pen um, just because feathers are quite good um, or perhaps reed is, and reed is also quite good and perhaps traditional for them. Reed is more common and traditional in Sephardi communities and feathers uh, for Ashkenazi scribes. Um, and some people use, there are also plastic nibs these, day, these days, resin nibs. Again, they're not as good, um, but they're good if, you, if you're learning and you're in training and you can't quite cut a good feather yet. Um, I've also heard of ceramic uh, feathers, feathers, I mean, ceramic uh, pens. Um, and those I, I understand are quite good as well. Anything else? Okay. All right, I'm gonna do a little more here. Okay, so um, the ink is, uh, it's interesting. There are no, certain ingredients that the ink has to have, but this is a, a common, a common ink is a, a gall ink. And the way that it is made, or at least one of the ingredients, it comes from a gall nut. And if you don't already know this, a gall nut forms on certain trees. When a wasp lays eggs on that tree, and the tree kind of has an allergic reaction and forms these balls around the eggs of the wasp. So, so on the top left, you're looking at those balls on the tree. And on the bottom right, you're looking at inside the ball. And that is wasp larva. And once the wasp larva turns into a wasp and flies out through a hole in the ball, there, the residue and the crushed up ball is used in one of the ingredients of the ink. And it's called a gall, it's called a gall ink. Um, and this is, um, this is a picture of uh, sewing the sheets together. All the sheets are sewn, whether in Megillah or uh, Sefer Torah. And it's sewn with um, special uh, thread, which is called gied. And gied is also comes from a kosher animal, um, from the ligaments of a kosher animal in the insides. And it's, it's very strong, but you also, you know, sometimes they do come apart. Um, so for example, if you see on the right-hand side, this was a repair I did um, for a congregation in New York City. I believe this is Temple Emmanuel. Um, one of their Torahs, uh, the, sh the sheet was coming apart, right? It, it had not fallen apart to this extent, but it had fallen apart enough that it needed to be taken out. So this is, I fully removed the stitching between the sheets and I re-sewed the sheets together. 
and that's def that's something that can be done. On the left, you can see initial stitching for a new Safer Torah. And these are some of the um, these are some of the instruments that are used. This is an awl that pokes holes in the parchment um, for the for the gid to go through. And uh, this is a pliers which helps pull the gid through when it gets stuck. And of course, the needle. Now, as you may know, if you look inside a Torah, that there's nothing but the letters except for crowns. And there are seven letters that get three crowns on them. That's the shin, the ayin, the tet, the nun, the zayin, the gimel, and the tzadi. And they get them whether they're in their standard form or their final forms at the end of a letter. And there are different styles of crowns. Some people say that the style of the crown is uh, reflective of the body type of the scribe. So mine would be like kind of like on the shorter, squattier side, and some tall person would have would have these. I don't know if that's true, but <laughs> um, there are also places in the in the safer that are kind of different or special. On the top, you see examples of large letters. The most common or what most well-known, I should say, example of large letters in the Torah is in when, when the Shema is in the Torah. So the Ayn of the word Shema and the Dalid of the word Echad are larger than the rest. And this is reprinted in many prayer books and you can see that difference and that's how it is in the Torah. But these are not the only large letters. There are other ones as well. And there are also tiny letters. So we just had one in the, in the beginning of the book of Vayikra, the Aleph is tiny, and there are a lot of explanations and midrashic, um, you know, uh, stories for why we have big letters here, small letters there, um, and those are those are interesting. We also have the inverted nuns. This is a um, a passage in in uh, in Bamidbar in Numbers. Um, it might be familiar because it's part of the Torah service. And just this one, just these here, it's two and a half, I should say maybe three lines in the Torah, bracketed by these upside down, they're usually backwards. These are, these are upside down. I thought that was fair. It's fairly unusual to see them written like this. That's why I have a picture of them. Um, upside down nuns, they're seen as symbols, not as letters. And some people even say that, um, that there are not five books, that, the, that the, the words between those two backwards nuns are actually their own book of the Torah. So making for not five books of Torah, but how many? It's a trick question. Not six. not that tricky of a question. So it makes for, yes, Gary, you got it. It makes for seven because you have Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, and then you have the first part of um, numbers before the brackets, then you have the brackets, then you have the second part of the book of numbers, and then you have De Deuteronomy. Um, so yes, any questions about any of that? And I am checking the time because I don't know. Okay, we have, we have time. I have a question. Go ahead. 
are all Torah scrolls written with the same the same lines in the same places if you have a big scroll versus a small scroll and then there are sometimes scrolls where there are a lot of those stretched out letters on the end to make it to the end of the line is that trying to keep up with a certain location of a letter um it's a very good question so no um not all torahs have the same we'll call it pagination um and the only rules about how it how it has to be um, formed, like pagination wise, are there have to be certain open spot bases and certain closed, right? So you see those like half of a line open and half of a line closed. Those are those are the same throughout. Um, but especially if you look at older scrolls, you'll see different you know different words on the top of each column, and it's okay. So there is now a very common way to paginate a Torah. It's called the it's called vavea mudim. And it means that each column begins with the letter Vav. Not each column, most of the columns. Of course, the first column cannot begin with the letter Vav because the Torah begins with the letter Bet. Um, and there are a few other cases where it doesn't, but most of the columns begin with the letter Vav. But if, for example, I get to an end of a line and I can't fit the word, there's no problem bringing it to the next line. However, there is a problem putting a dash in the middle of a word and putting the rest of the word on the next line. That I can't do. So that's So you will see... Um, stretched letters uh, or squished letters to, to fit the alignment of the, of the column. You'll, you'll see that. Um, and only certain letters can be stretched. Not every letter can be stretched because some letters won't look like their letter anymore. You can't stretch a yud, right? It won't look like a yud if you stretch it, but you can stretch um, a resh or a lamed. Um, so actually I have, I have examples of, of stretched letters. Um, so you can see, you see the blue arrow at the bottom? That's a stretched hay. It's only slightly stretched. I mean, this is, you know, this is the copy that we're all copying from. It's like as close to perfection as we can get, get to. So it's not super stretched, um, but it is a little bit, it is a little bit stretched. Um, and just to show you a couple other more in, um, interesting aspects of the scroll, um, on the left here, we have the Shiratayam, the, the Song at the Sea, and it's written in a certain uh, form. Some people say that it's like a visual midrash, meaning the text tells us that the people walked through the sea, the waters were to their right and to their left. So it's as if there's water down here and water here, and in the middle, the people are walking through. So it, it, it's very beautiful. Um, and then on the right here, we have, uh, I think it's Vaisha Kehu is how it's pronounced. Um, this is when um, Jacob and Esav are, are uh, reunited and Esav comes to, Esau comes to, to kiss him and it says he kissed him and there are dots over it. And a, a, lot, a lot of the rabbis interpret this to mean, well, was it a kiss? Maybe it was a bite. Maybe he was trying to harm him. Basically, it means that there's another there's another layer there. Um, that's how it, the dots have been understood, and also traditionally they've been understood as we're not sure if that word should be there. Um, on the bottom, we have one of the more interesting uh, letters in the entire Torah. It's the only letter that's broken on purpose in the word shalom here. This vav, at least in most Ashkenazi scrolls, is 
broken, you can see. If this was any other letter, that would need to be fixed because it would not be considered kosher. But this one's broken. Um, the context is, is uh, Pinchas and his zealous response to um, finding uh, two people having sexual relations in the, in the holy temple or in the holy, I can't remember exactly where they were. And he, he spears them together um, in a violent act. And then God makes a, um, a pact of peace with him, a breach of shalom. And this is the word shalom, breach shalom. So some people have interpreted this as to mean, well, maybe this was, was not entirely peaceful, right? This, this vav and the shalom is broken. Um, questions, and, I, and then I'm going to show you, um, hopefully show you on my camera some, some writing um, live. Your questions? Okay. Um, has anyone visited the website Safaria? Yeah? All right, so I'm going to show you, I'm going to show you for a second, just because this is like my claim to fame here. Um, it's your pen writing in the beginning of at the um, at the home site. Yeah, so that's me. Cool. <laughs> that's awesome. Thank you. I watched yeah. that a lot. I'm mesmerized by that. <laughs> it, um, so I'm a little bit. So now when I show you on the camera, it's not going to look as good because, of course, this was an excellent film crew and they had really, you know, a really nice camera. We did like 30 takes, but um, but yeah, that's uh, that's me. But we'll try to do it here too. So I'm gonna set my, I'm gonna set my camera up. On this other screen. Okay. Um, what word should I write? Suggestions? I mean, I could do Reishi, but if we were interested in something else, I could do something else. How about Shabbatic? Huh? What did you say, Wendy? Shavuot. Shavuot, or, or we're in the Omer. Right. We are in the Omer. Could do Omer. That would require. Well, a I thought maybe tzedek for Rabbi Yanklovitz's uh, engagement in tzedakah and justice. Uh, in, in his honor. <laughs> we can do both. We could do tzedek and we could do Omer. We'll do. Okay, so. Of course, you're asking me to do the hardest letter, which is the tzadi. <laughs> okay. Let's see here. Oh, it's kind of backwards, isn't it? We'll see how this works. Oh dear. Okay. If you go to your video and say mirror image, Oh, okay. Let me try it. Oh, you mean on the phone? I guess. Um, I think I'm going to just try and turn it because that will be faster. <laughs> we'll do it. We'll do it the non-techie way. All right. There we go. So I'll also tell you that there are lines written in the Torah, not written in, um, sketched in. These are lines that you follow you actually use it as a top line can you see okay 
I usually make the crowns afterwards because they require um, a different part of the pen. So that's, uh, the kuf and the dalid get one little tug and the tzadi gets three. How long would it take you to learn so beautiful to write so beautifully? Thank you. Um, now I'll write Omer. Um, it it took me. I mean, I'm I I'm still learning. Oops. Um, in the sense that I'm always improving. But I would say after about a year and a half of practice, I had decent writing. Um, but I can still tell the difference between. Like I can now tell the difference between my writing two or three years ago and my writing now. Um, so. What happens if you make a mistake? Oh, I'm so glad you asked that question. Okay. Um, so basically, I'm trying to stop the spotlight. Is it back on me? Okay. So if I make a mistake, um, if I know that I made a mistake, I have, I blot off the extra ink. Like, let's say I, I don't know, I wrote, I wrote a dalid and it's supposed to be a, a, I don't know, gimel. Um, I would blot off the extra ink and then I would mark it in my book and come back to it. I come back to all the mistakes at the end of the column and scratch off the dry ink afterwards with a blade. And then maybe use a little sandpaper if I need a little white eraser and then I write the correct letter in its place. Now, um, I might not know I made a mistake. That's why the Torah is proof checked. Um, and these days, there's also a computer program that checks the Torah. You, I, I take a picture of every column and I send it in to my colleague and she sends me a report because it's a computer program and it checks it and it says all the mistakes. And so it's very, very useful. And then I can fix all those mistakes. I can fix most of the mistakes. There are situations that I would not be able to fix. I'm gonna show you a picture of one of them. Um, now, yeah, here's the oops. You can't, can't delete, can't just press delete. Um, this was a project to, um, to handwrite and also illuminate the Christian Bible, the entire thing. There were 10 scribes working on it. This is in translation, uh, in English translation. And one of the scribes accidentally skipped a line. And what they did in order to uh, fix it, because all of, they had done all the illuminations already. So she added the line at the bottom. And then the little birdie is flying up here and the beak is pointing into the spot where the line is supposed to go, <laughs> which is very clever, but um, not kosher for a Torah. So if I skipped a line and I did this once, I did this maybe even twice. Um, I, I remember the case in the, in the first Torah that I wrote and, and I remember what section it was into. It was, it was towards the end in Parshat Ha'azinu because it's very poetic. And it's hard, it's easier to lose your place when you're writing poetry. I, I speak Hebrew, I'm fluent in Hebrew, but even for me, the poetry is hard. Um, and so I must've lost my place and, um, and I accidentally skipped a line. 
and I had to, I, I couldn't use that, that sheet. I, you can't, you can't scratch off an entire column or, or even half a column. I mean, it would look terrible and it would take forever. So I had to do that whole, that whole, um, that whole sheet over again. So that's about, you know, depending where, which column you messed up on, that's about a, a, a week's work. Um, and then that sheet has to go to a Geniza, um, has to be buried because it's sacred writing. Um, you can either bury it or you could keep it for educational purposes and, and show people. I do that with a mezuzah that I messed up one of the letters on and I, I send it around the room back when there used to be physical rooms um, and ask people to see if they could find the mistake and they sometimes, they sometimes do. Um, I wanted to show you just a couple more things. Uh, so I mentioned that I wrote a Torah at a museum um, and people watched me write. And a couple of years after I did that, I, I heard about another exhibit at the Jewish Museum in Berlin where they were having a robot write a Torah. And this is a picture of that robot. Someone had programmed this robot to write out, you know, by hand, so to speak, the entire Torah. Now they said, this is not a kosher Torah, which, it, which it's not. And the reason has to do with how I opened up this session talking about Kavanah, intention. Because a robot cannot have intention or add intention to what it's doing. It can't put spirit or soul into it. Um, so on sort of a halachic and technical, technical level, it has to do with um, how, it has to do with writing names of God. That the robot cannot um, put intention into that. But I think on a, on a more aesthetic, not aesthetic like artsy, but like a kind of an aesthetic meaningful um, way, having each scroll be unique is I, I think like something that I'm personally attached to. And I think that our community is, is um, it, it's meaningful for our community too, that each scroll is very special because it, it's, it's, it's its own, right? If every scroll was just computer generated or robot generated, it wouldn't hold the same emotional um, value, I don't think, even though it would have, of course, the same words. Um, and just to, to, to wrap it up and to, uh, to maybe whet your appetite for more, um, the, this is a short history of Hebrew scripts. The, the script that we see the Torah in, this is an Ashkenazi script, but the Sephardi script looks quite similar. This is called Beit Yosef. Um, that's the script that we see Torahs in. But this is not the earliest Hebrew script. This is in fact uh, a borrowed script from um, from exile, from Babel, Babylonia, from an area called Ashur. And that is why it is called Ashurit. Although the rabbis of the Talmud have a disagreement, why is it called Ashurit? Some admit it's because it comes from the region of Ashur. Some say, no, it's because it's, they, the letters stand up straight um, because the meaning of the word, you know, Ashurit. Um, but, you know, the, it, it's hard to argue from an historical uh, perspective that this, that this alphabet was in existence at the time the Torah was first, that first emerged. Um, so some of them get around it. Some rabbi suggests, well, it was given at Sinai and then immediately taken away after the sin, meaning this after the sin of the golden calf, and then only came back many, many generations later. But this is the holy script. However, earlier, earlier scripts look like this, right? Phoenician, is almost identical to um, early Hebrew. And you can see they're, um, they're, they're quite 
are quite different, but you can still, you can actually, you can more easily see the, the connection to English um, from the Phoenician because Phoenician went to, to the Greeks and then eventually, you look, at, look at the Aleph, right? Rotate it 90 degrees to the right. What letter does it look like? An A. Um, and you can kind of, you can still kind of tease out these letters. If you look at the Proto-Canaanite here, this is when Hebrew was um, closer to hieroglyphics, meaning like symbolic. And each letter um, meant, symbolized a whole word. So let me take a good example. Um, okay, here, you can see my cursor, right? Okay, so this letter is the letter Ayin. Now the Ayin looks like this, like quite different. Um, it, in Phoenician, it looks like this, it's just a circle. And here, what's it look like? An eye, an eyeball. And, in, and still the word for eye in modern Hebrew is, is ein. Um, so it's the same as the name of the letter. And, you can, and you, can, you can hear in the name of the letter, the meaning of what that letter used to, used to mean. Um, so another example is, let's take the mem, right? This looks like, some people say it looks like a mountain, but it also looks like water. And how do you say water in Hebrew? Maim. And the letter is called mem, maim, mem. Those, are, those two are connected. So you can actually, you can hear, still hear the origins from, uh, in, the, in the names of the letters. Um, so that's, a, that, that's kind of a class in and of itself uh, on the evolution of the, of the scripts. Um, but I think we're at time today. And I, if there are any final questions, I'd love to answer them. Well, this was terrific to get, uh, you know, to get the, uh, a whole picture of your own journey of, of how things are done practically to see you write. Uh, really fascinating. Um, Thank you. Well, thank you so much for um, for being here and for asking your questions. I I totally uh, I totally appreciate your time. So great. Thank you so much, Julie. Thank you so much for this. And Rabbi uh, Stein Koken and Bethel, thank you for your partnership. This is really wonderful, incredibly insightful and talented. And it's a real gift to us to be able to learn from you, Julie. So thank you all for joining. Have a great day. Thank you. Me too.